Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Proden, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. So, what's happened since the last episode? Well, my books arrived. School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America, all 204 pages of it. Um... I am very excited. I mean, it, it looks awesome. Thank you, Roman and Littlefield, my publisher. And I've sent this out, uh, inscribed a number of copies. I've got it out to the member checks, got it out to family members, and it's doing really well. As of today, it was ranked number one in its category on Amazon. Now, it's selling as a published book from a publisher, So, obviously, uh, the Amazon numbers aren't reflecting the composite of sales to libraries and um, universities and so forth. And I actually require this book for my fall legal class. Uh, So, it's doing really well. Check it out. School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. Again, 204 pages, basically two nights, uh, many anecdotes. It's a light read for a heavy topic. Chapter one, how thinking about a bagel can get you through the worst day of your life. So mailed those out uh, book rate, which was pretty efficient. I, I thought it was going to take, you know, like seven to ten days. And people, you know, within one state of me uh, were getting their books in like three days. And within a week, everybody had their books. So I was impressed by that. Um, Now, I I took the books in two different sacks down to the post office. And when the guy was printing the labels um, for postage, the machine jammed like three times. So it wasn't busy, which was was good. You know, it was in the morning during the week. But I could see his frustration. He's like, ugh. I'm like, okay, dude, I can come back if we have to. Uh, split this into two transactions, but it really didn't take that long. I mean, everything weighed the same. I had it all labeled. I'm handing him the the books, but yeah, it's just the machine kept jamming on him. Um, So how can you find the book? Everybody asked me this. Well, how can you find the book? Like, what do I have to type in? I'm like, just type in my name. Like, that's all you have to do, literally. You know, type in my name, right? And the book comes in the you know, Google panel, if you're using a Google search, otherwise it, it comes up in the search like a thousand times. Um, so you'll have no problem finding it. But uh, yeah, I've, I have relatives who are like, you know, what's the name? What's the ISBN number? What's all of them? Like, hey, like, don't make this any more complicated than it needs to be. Like go into Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, anywhere that sells books, and you can probably get the book, okay? It's not that elusive. So, um, I, again, I get a kick out of out of that. And I've been thrilled. I mean, people have been contacting me from all over. Uh, initial shipment of books went out um, about a week ago, week, week and a half. 
uh, people who had pre-ordered the book. But then there was such a demand, there was such a run um, that they needed to produce, obviously, more books and change the official release date. It had bounced around from August 1st to August 7th. It initially was August 10th. So it, it's a point where even I can't get a hold of additional books right now. They need to run through the presses and fulfill orders that are waiting. So it's really good for me to have that happen. But uh, yeah, excited, really excited. I've, I've given it one read-through. Just uh, so appreciative of everybody that contributed uh, the member checks who allowed me to, you know, quote them in the book and then just the reviewers who were brutally honest with parts of the book. And um, I had one chapter, you know, I, I literally printed it off and cut it into strips and put it out on a kitchen table, reordered it, put some different headings down and stuff. So because, you know, getting feedback um, initially in those formative stages, and that's the, that's the benefit, you know, when you do that. Versus, I think, just going um, directly into self-publishing um, is you you have those member checks when you're working with a publishing house. And I also uh, worked to bring in those member checks. Not that you, you can't. I mean, there's some awesome self-publishers just as there are awesome people who have published and people who have published. It hasn't been that great for them, you know. But, but what I'm saying is the member checks, people that go through it and go through it. So when you, by the time you get it, I mean, it, it's been, it's been really checked for readability. Um, the, the content is clear. So it's exciting. School of Airs, you can buy it. And I donated two copies to my hometown library where I grew up, um, which is a beautiful library. Uh, most of it was, was donated by one of the philanthropists in town. Um, it was built about I don't know if it was 10 years ago, or, but it's a, it's a beautiful facility. Um, and donated two books, and then I'm doing a, an author event there, and then in another adjacent community of about 50,000 people. And then they actually asked me to come in and present to their library system about school safety and the safety in general. Like maybe what, what would you do in a library if, if something was happening or you observed um, – you know, erratic behavior by someone, some, you know, statements, internet searches, you know, residue, how would you interface with that person or interface with authority, which I thought was fascinating. Like, I, I hadn't intended to do that with the library system. So they approached me and I said, yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to um, be part of your in-service. They have an in-service day, which I didn't even know that existed. I didn't know how that whole system worked, right? So I'm going to be putting together this presentation for uh, this greater library system. Um, so, Crisis Response Journal accepted an article I wrote about the Notre Dame Cathedral fire. And I wrote it within days of the fire. And I was frustrated because the initial alarm, um, you know, somebody climbed up many stairs, takes a long time to get up there, but then they didn't find anything so they're just like, well, the alarm malfunctioned in the computer system, whatever, and they just went back down. And then, you know, it's half hour later and the they alarm sounds again and, and they go up and then it's too late. You know, the fire's starting to, to rage. So I, I write the article and it's, it's about a thousand words um, talking about how when you investigate, you have to investigate to a conclusive result, right? Like if it's 
the Notre Dame Cathedral, and you you have you know this what eight nine hundred year old in, incredible um, you know wood lattice work you know rafter system holding this up, um, you know holding up that lead roof. Wouldn't you walk from one side to the other and have a flashlight? And wouldn't you also have like an infrared detector that you would walk through that area with? Um, it just seems like that's all common sense, right? You wouldn't get up there and, and say, well, you know, I don't see anything. I don't smell anything. So I'm not going to walk the distance to check out what's going on. Like that just doesn't make sense. So I wrote an article saying, you know, we just get this, this, um, this complacency that it's self-similarity, right? Every day is going to be similar to the last. Things won't typically happen that are chaotic. So this alarm, probably a malfunction would have returned to normal. So we get that. And what we need to do, though, is we need to investigate everything to an absolute conclusion. So it's a really brilliant kind of cheeky piece. They loved it. I was excited. I've never published with Crisis Response Journal for me. That's, you know, also very enticing as as a public, you know, as someone who authors works for journals to have more exposure to a different audience. And I really enjoy Crisis Response um, Journal. So I... Yeah, I, I'm feeling really great about that. That article will come out in August, and I had an article that was released by Capin Journal, Why No Safety Drills for Students with Special Needs. Um, that was very popular. So, yeah, getting out there. I've always done a lot of journal articles in my life, and now I'm getting into some new um, some new journals. appreciate that. So I didn't know this. I, this is just kind of a point of curiosity, right? So I learned that you can take a tour of Chernobyl. Um, and I, you know, I'm thinking the whole thing is like, it's, it's the perimeter is huge and you can't get in. And if you do get in, you have to have just a very limited exposure, but that's not the case at all. Um, you can look online and you can, you can just find these tour agencies where, um, you know, for the right price and it's not prohibitive, you can spend several hours um, in Chernobyl. And actually, like they bring food in, and I think you eat within one of the buildings. Um, and people kind of just tour the the neighborhoods that are around there. But you're actually within a couple hundred yards of of where the reactor that melted down was. It's, it's I can't imagine this, but it's true. Like there's many videos of it, and and it's kind of of a neat thing to do, right? If you ever had an opportunity to tour Chernobyl. Um, and and apparently the level of radiation you receive is this, the same as if you did like a cross-country flight or, you know, like one x-ray or something like that. I don't know. It's pretty insignificant, which I was also surprised. I thought it'd be higher than that. But yeah, imagine, imagine taking a Chernobyl tour. I, I don't know. I think I would probably do it um, for curiosity's sake, and I'd have to triple check that it was authentic. You know, you weren't going in there and getting this massive dose of radiation. <laughs> but uh, it's wild. It's wild. And one thing they say is they'll, they'll come in and into buildings, and, you know, there'll be, like, some beds. Because, what, Chernobyl, I think, was 86. 
Um, and then it'll be like the moment everybody evacuated. But they said, that's obviously, that's just staged. <laughs> Everything has been looted several times over. And so when you go into any areas in Chernobyl, it's pretty much a photo op. It's been set up for you, uh, which I thought was kind of kind of interesting. But yeah, Chernobyl tours. So if you don't know where you're going next year, Chernobyl tour. Um, I've had some comments on the YouTube channel here for the Safety Doc Podcast. I really appreciate it. It's, um, p- you know, people are commenting about the content, um, commenting specifically about the episode where I talked about in, with James Sibley, Attorney James Sibley, excluding students with disabilities from safety drills. Um, very rich commentary about um, alternatives to the typical, you know, blaring horns and white strobe lights that are happening. And the fact that one of the, the contributors indicated um, he actually worked with his local school district to replace those. Um, and yeah, I, I, I didn't know that was happening out there and I, I didn't know what the acceptable replacements were, but obviously, um, that is something in my next book, as far as, um, drill safety and, and making sure that we have drills that aren't traumatizing students and staff, um, it's going to involve the notification system, um, because, you know, it seems that there is a way to also do this that isn't so terrifying and and frightening. So I'm going to contact that person um, specifically and get some more information, do a little more research on my own. Um, My July 3rd presentation on Wednesday night at the lab, Wisconsin Public Television, was and is the third most viewed episode of the last 60 episodes. Um, So I'm thrilled about that. And the numbers keep climbing. I don't know how they hashtagged it out in um, the different cross-promotion that happens with that episode, but uh, it's really doing well. Um, So, yeah, having being, you know, the third most viewed out of the last 60 episodes... um, bodes well for a return of the safety dock for Wednesday night at the lab in Wisconsin public television. Um, that's actually being edited and prepared for syndication this fall. So they'll edit it down to 58 minutes, which is where I ended outside of the little YouTube mishap I had, but they'll clean that up. And then, um, the question answer section gets taken off of that. So, that's really cool. Excited about that because then that becomes the national stage. But um, but yeah, the, sh- the the raw show everything, including um, the question and answer, is is the third most viewed out of the last sixty. So thank you, thank you so much. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, A brave demonstration of speaking truth to power, School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. 
using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations. David contrasts the expensive window dressings, pitched to panic parents, with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Um, I updated my website, safetyphd.com, and it was more out of, well, I mean, it was out of necessity because the, the site had last been updated in 2017. The book was coming out, so I needed the content to be current because people would say, you know, if I, I did an interview, um, they'd say, well, where can people learn more about you? I'd be like, well, safetyphd.com, so I need to scramble and just update the images and, and the narrative. And, and it's a system, it's WordPress in GoDaddy, and I'm not that familiar with WordPress because somebody built the site for me. Like, I gave them the content, and someone I know, a friend, created the site, but I couldn't keep going back and saying, like, can you do the updates and whatever. Um, so I learned, I watched tutorials, and I figured out how to do the updates and and make it so now I have School of Errors as one of the, the menu options on the top that you can go and, and click and get right to the, the book. Um, but yeah, the site really has a nice look. I didn't pay the, like, 100 bucks a year to get the little green secure thing so google will say not secure but i don't sell anything off of the site so i'm not gonna do that it's really like it houses the blog houses my blog that goes along with these podcast and some information about me but yeah i'm not gonna pay the hundred bucks it seems like that's like a 15 dollar deal right why are, i'm paying a hundred bucks to have the secured thing on there i don't pay that much for the site so, nope, not happening. Um, I tossed out the first pitch at the Duluth Huskies baseball game on July 31st at historic Wade Stadium in Duluth, Minnesota. The Huskies hosted the lacrosse loggers and won 11-5. The Huskies had uh, two monster home runs. Their players... Uh, Great team. First place. Wade Stadium, just a beautiful uh, place to watch baseball. Built in 1941 as a CCC project. They restored it a couple years ago, but it still has the feel of a stadium that was built in the 30s. They didn't go all crazy jazzy with it, you know, like the, the contemporary stadiums that are built, which are more like amusement parks than just the, the true heart of baseball. Just a great place. So I got to go out on to uh, the pitcher's mound with my youngest daughter and throw out a pitch. And I put a video up. So I have two YouTube accounts. I've the David Proden one, which is typically my university lectures go up there. And the safety doc one, which is what you're watching right now. If you're on YouTube or it's where my safety doc podcasts are. So I put this one over on my personal site. Um, and it's just a minute and like 25 seconds or something like that. But it's kind of fun, you know, if you want to check it out. Because, uh, you know, there's a little bit of music, a little bit of organ music, crowd stuff um, getting out. It's an astroturf field, so it's kind of cool to walk out there. And 
I didn't embarrass myself with the first pitch, so felt pretty good up there on the mound, and it was just so um, I I felt happy for the players. I mean, if so these these guys are like you know twenty years old and and they're out there playing, you know this uh, Northwoods League, it's like minor league baseball, um, and what fun that absolutely has to be, right? If you're that age. You get nice crowds uh, turning out. You get to visit these different areas. Um, it's just really cool. So I, I was thrilled to be a part of it. The franchise honored me for my um, career work in school safety. And behind me, I snagged. This is a 1919 Western Electric candlestick phone. So it doesn't have a rotary um, piece on it. So underneath is the bell box. This thing is heavy. So the bell box like 20 pounds. The phone's like 5 pounds. But yeah, it actually, um, this was picked from a home in Wisconsin as an estate sale about 10 years ago. And I bought it from the man who picked it. So he and his father uh, worked together. Um, and this is what, what they do. Like, And so I was able to get it from him at a terrific price. Um, I, I think he was just appreciative that he knew it was going to a place where I'm going to use it um, in the show as a backdrop, but also I'm going to use it when I go out and present on school safety, as long as I'm not flying because I can't take this thing with me. Uh, but if I'm driving anywhere, I'm going to take this with and talk about communication being critical to school safety and the fact that this was communication 100 years ago and what that meant. And let's just talk about communication now. But I'm just going to go back here. And of course, yeah, you move the the mouthpiece, and then you put it back on. It's like this really—I forget what the, the what the uh, the name of it is—but it's really heavy plastic. Again, so this is a hundred years old, nineteen nineteen by Western Electric. Um, just a really cool piece. I looked for that quite a while, but online there's replicas, and then. Otherwise, they're all out of places like the Ukraine or something, and you just don't know the authenticity. So this thing, yeah, is is genuine, um, and it was initially installed in Wisconsin, so I have a little bit of the backstory on it. But I'm really thrilled to get it. I just think it adds a lot. Um, I'm not sure where I'm going to move it down here in the studio. I need to do a little updating down here um, in time. and it will definitely have its place. So yeah, it's gonna be in the backdrop. It replaces the the man carrying the rock, which I might move somewhere else, but I really wanted the phone because again, the show and safety is so much about communications. And a shout out to the sponsors here of the Safety Dog Podcast. The 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California. John Grant and the 405 Media bringing you the Safety Doc Podcast at 2 p.m. PST Daily. Again, coming out of Los Angeles, California. Also, radio and podcast, radioandpodcast.com. Jim Mallard. It is a phenomenal radio podcast station. So just check out radio and podcast. You won't be disappointed. And Jim has had... Hey, Roger Stone on his show. So many more. I'm coming back in just a week. Wow. 
Um, hey, Spark Radio, Spark Radio Net, um, Spark Radio Denver, Washington, New York. Also syndicating out the Safety Doc podcast. Big shout out to our good friends there at Spark Radio. All right. So you are going to start a school safety conference. So why would you want to do that? Well, let me give you my story. Back around um, 2009, 2010, 11, 12, I was, I was big into conferences. I actually started a conference maybe around 2003, 2004, which still um, gets about 500 attendees to this day. So I knew how to start a conference. I knew how to found a conference. I held myself to a high standard for the quality of presenters, the content, just that a conference was very professional in its design and nature. So yeah, um, you know, you have to be ethical to, to run a, a conference uh, because, you know, people are giving their time and they're giving their money to you. I always maintained that standard, but that standard has eroded significantly today. And I know that as someone who presents at conferences, I know it's happening to conferences. So let's talk about that. Um, you know, the $3 billion school safety industry, again, I kind of argue it's $5 billion because I think a lot of school referendums, renovations kind of roll into this and they don't show up specifically on the books as school safety. But again, if you put a referendum out there and the word school safety is in it, it probably will pass. But let's talk about, we have this multi-billion dollar industry and there's an offshoot of that, which is conferences. And you're starting to see conferences rebadged as conventions because what sounds more official? What sounds more prominent? A conference or a convention? Well, convention, right? So we see conventions, conferences, but it's the same thing, but people are starting to realize if we call it a convention, it just seems to put it on a pedestal, all right? So um, how do... How does a conference or a convention, but how does a conference make money? So I'm going to give you the inside because I did this. I know. Um, here's some different sources. One is the attendees. So people pay um, to attend a conference. So let's say it's a, a two-day conference. Maybe they're paying anywhere from three to four hundred dollars. Um, you would think that's like a really big source of money. Um, but you also have vendors. And at a conference hall, you might be able to accommodate anywhere, depending upon the hall, you know, 20 to 50 to 100 vendors. Um, I think the most I ever had at a conference was maybe about 30. So if you're, um, if you're having vendors, you know, come to your conference, you know, they're paying anywhere between, you know, $500 to maybe $5,000 for their spot at that conference, which might be a table um, outside of conference halls, which might be its own um, exhibition room, you know, like a uh, 10,000 square foot, you know, space or something like that, that they, they have an area designated. So vendors uh, bring in a lot of money for school safety conferences. Uh, that's not exactly new. I mean, that that's always happened. 
but it's changed. And I'm going to get into that. It's a different type of, of vendor. Um, also, sponsors. So you can sponsor out anything these days. Um, you can sponsor your breaks. This break is brought to you by whoever, okay? And then you badge it in your mailers and your online, you know, your website and stuff like that and say, hey, especially if you go to like insurance companies, insurance companies, um, major food chains, you know, they want to be associated with school safety and this is a great way for them to do it. And that was always remarkably easy, actually, for me, you know, or even like electric and, you know, power and gas companies of saying, hey, you know, running this, um, it's for, you know, for example, school safety. And it also is going to be attended by people that use your products. Um, and in most cases, they would they would sponsor a break. They would sponsor a presenter like our keynote presenter. Um, you know, your keynotes are your, your most expensive, expensive presenters. You know, your keynote could be brought to you by whatever or a bank. Um, socials, they would sponsor food for the evening, food and, and, and beverages. Um, sometimes they'd sponsor meals. They would sponsor entire sessions. So if you think of it, you can sponsor it. It is, it's wide open. And I was just very good at that. Um, so sponsors, here's another revenue source. University credits or continuing education units. University credits was really big uh, until about 2011-ish. Uh, in Wisconsin, for example, you were no longer required to pass or, or take university credits to maintain your license after 2011. Some school districts still had that as their way to advance teachers up the pay scale, but then that kind of faded out from everyone. But um, you can still, people have to still maintain, you know, if you're a physical therapist, occupational, speech language, um, continuing ed units, districts still have, school districts, a way to advance teachers uh, through salary lanes, and a lot of it is tied to professional development. So there's still some appeal to this, not as much as there was. But again, I remember, um, and, and how this typically would work is you'd have a partnership with a university, and the university would, if you charged, you know, two hundred for one credit, or you know, whatever, six hundred for three credits, the university would take like sixty percent of that, and then they would give forty percent back to the institution or the organization that was putting on the conference. So I, when working and founding a conference, I always had a fiscal agent. I was always working with someone else, co-founding it, um, and then their agency would serve as a fiscal agent, meaning that they would pay the bills, pay for the presenters that they would take in the registrations. Like you didn't do that just personally. There wasn't an organization you worked through. Um, but yeah, so revenue, attendees, vendors, sponsors, university credit. So. You have a lot of sources to pull in a lot of money. Um, expenses for a conference. E exhibition space is, yeah, that's going to be a big cost for you. Food is a huge cost. And the conferences want you to have your attendees eat there. Okay, they want them to stay on site because, you know, food is a big 
moneymaker and so do the vendors. The vendors don't want your participants going off site to eat. I'll talk about in a little while, you can do that when you design a conference as a way to cut cost a little bit, um, but it really is kind of a bad move and, and most big conferences won't do that. They'll keep you on site. Audio video, uh, you know, so if I'm renting a screen and using the projector, if I'm using a PA system, their house PA system, I'm paying for that and that's not cheap. Uh, paying for the presenters, uh, paying for their lodging, their transportation, the bigger keynotes you get, they expect you to pick them up at the airport. So that's the arrangement. You have somebody go down, meet them at the airport, take them back. You have to give them good lodging. Um, so you go upscale with them in addition to whatever fee that you are paying them. Someone has to take them back to the airport. Marketing, okay. Uh, working to get your flyers put together, your mailing list, purchasing your mailing list, uh, doing your your postage and, and all of that. And then, you know, your websites and email. So people have to do that. Now, when you're grassroots, you can do a lot of this. Like I designed out the mailers, work locally with a company to get them, got the uh, addresses and things like that. So uh, a lot of weekends actually I would work putting things together. Um, organizations putting on the events. We talked about the fiscal agent. If someone is processing registrations, uh, they're going to need to be compensated for that. So if they have someone um, on staff and that person is spending, you know, five or 10 hours a week processing re registrations, you're going to have to compensate that person for their time and their cost. And then event staff, um, you know, people that you have there on the day of the event or the day before helping to set up. Um, so those are the expenses. You know, probably, again, the biggest one, your exhibition space and also food. Food is very expensive. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. Nine to nothing. Post-game show is brought to you by... Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it. Um, negotiables for a conference okay negotiables so keynotes can double dip if they're working for usually like a state agency or a company they'll have built into their contract um, in, in a lot of cases okay they'll have built in that they can present you know maybe five days a year and they can also be compensated for that although they're so it's kind of it is double dipping it's not kind of it is double dipping and i've seen contracts like that um, so then when you're bringing someone in, if they're already being paid for the day, 
And let me say, why this would happen, why you would allow someone to get their daily rate of pay plus like be paid to present, it's it, it brings a credibility to the agency where that person works. And it makes, um, you know, if you, if you have, for example, a superintendent or, or somebody with, you know, whatever public organization in a very prominent position and, and they're going out and presenting it, it lends more credibility to them and brings that back to your, your company or your agency. So there is incentive to do that because you can say this person presented at whatever. And then the, they're also making connections while they're out there. Um, so you might be, be getting um, some additional business if it is a business or else it just, again, is, is reflecting very well upon your organization to have this person in the sought-after position. So, yeah, if a keynote, though, is in a double-dipping role, you might be able to negotiate a better price because maybe they're getting their daily rate and they're getting some compensation for you know mileage or flight or whatever from their employer. So you can say, in addition to that, we'll do you know this much. Those people are usually not that expensive overall once you um, consider that they're already being paid for the time that they're with you. Um, also, hey, if they can sell their books or pitch their consulting service, they'll go for that. Um, anything to advertise themselves or their product if they're more independent. So know what you can exchange with people, okay? Um, it's the whole kind of negotiation, uh, never split the difference, Chris Voss. Everybody has a vested interest. So um, if you can say, hey, I'm going to give you access to like this number of people and this this whole new market that you'd be able to, you know, have for example, you know, your, your presentations, you're going to get invited to more conferences. Um, that's appealing to people if they, if they know that. So, um, if you can get 200 or more people to stay at a conference center, um, you're going to get a break off the facility. Sometimes if you get like 500 people, they'll give you the facility for free. So it's something else you can negotiate at a conference. I always worked on that. What's the threshold? Like if we have this many people, what can we get off? Because if you go during an off season and they don't have many people um, typically staying in the rooms and you can bring business in, that's a good thing. Um, I, I also think, you know, you can, I, you can comp vendors. I've, I've done this a few times. If it's someone that's going to add value to the event, um, I'll waive the vendor fee. And I did this a few times. One was uh, a parent group that, who were training uh, parent liaisons to help school districts. Um, so if a school district uh, had a uh, challenging um, parent that they were interacting with, this liaison group could kind of work as um, a, a middle person in that. Um, and usually people who don't trust districts will trust parent liaisons, you know, who are affiliate with the districts. So, you know, that, that had its part. And then also there was a man um, who sold art and I don't know what uh, his area of, of disability um, was, but it was, it was a fascinating story because he 
was um, pretty profoundly impacted for his entire life and was cared for by his parents. He was like in his 60s and was um, at like an assisted living center or, or, or something like that. And they had an arts and crafts project and they realized this guy's an artist. Like he's making this incredible artwork. And he had a website and, and someone was working with him. I don't know if it was Department of Oak Rehab or what it was, but uh, this beautiful artwork. And they contacted me and said, um, could he, you know, can we buy a table? And I was like, I talked it over with the other people I was running the conference with. And I said, you know, I, I just want this guy here because I want to tell that story um, of how, you know, we kind of discover people at different points in their life. And just because you have a disability doesn't mean you don't have capability. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And then um, I bought one of his paintings, which I have uh, actually displayed down here in the office. But um, I didn't want to charge him. He was just getting started. I wanted this exposure because it was very germane to the conference topic, which was it was the conference was the Great Lakes Behavioral Summit, and it was it was held in the Midwest. Um, but to have him there and to embody kind of the the whole point of we need to really understand um, people and whether you know adults or kids and give them different ways to express themselves. And with this man, it was later in life that this talent was uncovered and thankfully in time for him to, you know, produce paintings and, and, and make this incredible contribution. So it's kind of cool, but I always, I always did that. I always made sure we had some people, whether they were kind of up and coming or I just felt would be very essential to adding value to the event. So another thing I did, Hey, if you're a vendor, I required you to donate um, things to the prize drawings. Okay. So it could be your product or it could be something that you would, you know, purchase that, you know, we would put in then. So, I mean, for example, you could donate a $50 Amazon gift card. So we had a lot of drawings, right? So, you know, maybe 50 people walked away from our conference with something of value. Um, so you talk about negotiables when you have local presenters Typically, you don't have to pay them a fee. They're just happy for the exposure. They can drive there. If you, if you give them the conference for free, that's like a gift in of itself, right? $300, $400 conference. So you can kind of give them, comp them out the conference. Not any lodging, but just, you know, their, their registration. Um, and then, you know, you, you've got them. Um, and it also grounds that conference where you just don't have people talking who are just going to fly out a thousand miles and you'll never see them again. Um, you've got people who, you know, literally you could drive to their district and, and meet with them. Pretty cool stuff. So negotiables, you can sell breakout sessions to vendors. I did that a few times. Um, if I felt that it was adding value um, and I, I only did it a handful of times. So any conference that I was participating in, you know, you could expect um, 20% or less of breakout sessions to be run by a vendor. And I would always make sure the vendor submitted the presentation to me ahead of time. So if it was someone presenting on, um, 
you know, two-way radios or something like that. I didn't want the presentation to be about their two-way radio product. And I was very clear about that. And I, I always roamed session to session for breakouts. Um, the presentation had to be about the purpose of two-way communications in schools and in crisis situations. And at the end, you know, it was fine for them to say, this is what we do as a company. But the presentation itself was, this is, you know, this is what a basic communication system looks like. And if you, for example, use the phone, a phone is one-to-one, one person-to-one. If you use a radio, it's one-to-many people. And then they talk about how radio systems work, um, what a repeater is, and why that's important, and then the different comsec, communication, security, things like that. So it's very, it's, it's very practical, important, relevant information. So it makes them um, uh, be perceived as an expert in their field versus someone who's just put before you to convince you, you have to have radios because, you know, every school needs to have this system in case there's an intruder or something like that, um, which is kind of like what happens right now. So I held people to that standard and people did very well with that. They appreciated that, I think, being able to uh, be intellectual versus just pitching a product. And if they couldn't hit that threshold, I'd be like, no, you know, I can't. It's not going to be a 50-minute sales pitch for you. Um, also, go to your local chamber of commerce, especially in the off-season, and say, hey, I'd like to bring this conference here. Um, we're looking at three to 500 people. If it's successful, we're going to do it on an annual basis. And I realize this isn't your busy time of year. What can you do as a chamber? And the chamber will sometimes put money out there and say, here's money to get started. Or we are going to donate, um, you know, coupons to your raffles so people can go to restaurants at night and, you know, get out in the community and, you know, add to the economic uh, viability of that community during kind of an off season. So it's, it's pretty cool. And we talked about that whole um, attendees thing, you know, you can turn them loose for lunch. But you probably don't want to do that because, again, the vendors want the people there. But at the times when they do, you have conferences and people go out to lunch, there's usually deals worked out with proximal restaurants around that area. So people, if they bring in their name ID from the conference, they might get 15% off or something like that. So you can always kind of work it. So that's the nuts and bolts of conferences. And I really enjoyed um, designing and running conferences. A lot of work to do it right and to do it in an ethical manner to find the presenters who are going to enrich and meet the themes of what you're doing. Watching their stuff ahead of time. Everyone has things on YouTube, calling places that they've been, looking at their materials. But what's happening today? The change today. There's a huge uptick in the number of school safety conferences because there's $3 billion out there for school safety. So there's conferences all the time. I get Google alerts every day on school safety conferences, and they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And most of them are response side, meaning the presenters, um, the vendors are law enforcement, secret service, FBI, um, surveillance cameras, bollards, bulletproof films, 
things like that. So it's response side, not prevention side, response side. Um, there's, uh, you're also losing the people like me, like the researchers, the, the authors of safety books. They're just not in vogue anymore. And they're probably going to say the truth. And the truth is, you know, we can't fortify our way to safety. So you're not going to bring in a keynote or a featured uh, presenter who is going to say something that doesn't align to all of this money coming in from your vendors who are out in the hallway and probably your sponsors to some extent. But no, that's just not happening. So what's, what is happening right now um, is... Vendors basically are buying presentation slots. So you come in and you have these big response side, you know, FBI, former military, whatever, you know, give this talk. And which really probably doesn't have a lot to do with school safety. It just has to do with some crisis response or whatever. Um, and yeah, everyone is just enamored by them. So there's little supporting research that attending a school safety conference translates into increased school safety. And it's difficult to find any learning objectives in these conferences. It's meaning people go to these things and they're really not better off for going to these things because it's just a full press marketing expo right now. They are being sold things. And the sessions, again, become response side keynotes, um, who aren't specifically talking about school safety, but something, you know, FBI, Secret Service, whatever. And, you know, it looks good. People are like, oh, yeah, I got to go see that. Um, but really, you know, your better option f for that, if I'm a, in a school administrator, your better option is to have your teachers stay on campus at your school, break it up so you have a morning and an afternoon, and they're taking some of the free FEMA emergency Management Institute courses, uh, which are very well put together. So maybe they're taking a course on instant command system and, you know, another one on some type of school safety response or numerous courses out there. But you could have them do that and you could also break it up into, you know, what a, the learning objectives are already laid out in those courses and you can have a discussion afterwards. But you might find yourself with a whole bunch better value than sending your teachers off to some place where they're going to become convinced that because their school doesn't have the latest surveillance camera system, it is a dangerous place. Vendors also, so conferences, again, they're run by vendors. Vendors are putting huge money out there, thousands of thousands of dollars. And they are getting premier space, premier access to administrators and to educators and the school board members. Uh, they're also doing breakout sessions. So the keynotes, again, you know, FBI, things like that are coming in. Um, keynote sessions are, are basically marketing. It's marketing. Um, so you're just being marketed. You're basically going to a store or like I compare it to, we have a boat show at the Alliant Energy Center in Madison, Wisconsin, or it's just they just bring in boats, and I mean, that's all you're doing. You're just, they're trying to sell boats to you, right? They're not teaching you about water safety or anything like that. It's just like, buy this boat. Um, a two-day conference of 400 attendees right now can net $100,000 or more. Probably pretty easily you can net $100,000 or more on a conference. Um, I My conferences always 
did very well. I always kept them in a, a appropriate price range, but the conferences did very well. Um, money coming back to the agency, but then also the agency is giving me more days to work on more conferences, which I liked to do. But um, so let's let's look at some of the numbers. 400 attendees probably charge $400, including meals included. So that's $160,000 coming in. Your vendors, you know, at least $30,000 from your vendors, probably much more than that. So, you know, a one-day table might be $500. Let's say at 10 of those, $5,000. Two-day table, 20 of those, $750 for two days, $15,000. And if you... Um, you know, added a, a breakout session. If you said, you know, you have to, you can have one breakout session, but it's going to cost you a thousand dollars more. Probably have 10 people take you up on that at least. And sponsors, you know, again, your power uh, company, food, banks, things like that, that's $10,000. They'll write it off. It's a charitable contribution, you know, if, well, if you're, if you're a nonprofit, but they want to show, they they definitely want to show that they're involved in school safety and making their communities better. They have money allocated for things like that. So that is definitely out there. Um, and again, they're going to sponsor maybe a presenter. They're going to sponsor breakouts. Law firms, my goodness, like they'll do that too. Like you go to law firms that work with schools and, hey, you know, would you do this? Yeah. Even like the schools, like 401k company. I mean, any, there's, you can, just exhaust this. So, you, you know, right there, that's a gross revenue, $200,000. You maybe like have, again, 100000 in expenses between um, the, you're going to have to pay the facility cost. You're going to have to pay for meals. You're going to have to pay some of your keynote presenters. But again, we're looking at about $100,000 off of a conference of about 400 attendees. And that's small, right? Because some of these conferences might have a thousand people or more attending them. And actually, once you get above a threshold, you just start to generate more revenue um, because it costs less if you're doing, you know, more mailers or more packets, or if you can take things and put them all on a thumb drive, all of the handouts, instead of having to print them, all well, the more thumb drives you buy, the cost of the thumb drives lowers and stuff like that. So again, what is happening right now? People like me, and this has happened to me, I've been offered the keynote at prominent conferences, and then I'll be contacted and say, we're going to go with the person who retired out of the FBI. I'm like, I don't even know who this person is, but okay. And they're going to give this presentation about, you know, whatever in the FBI, because people see that it looks. And also, uh, once I give my materials on what I'm going to present on, because uh, people, you know, my name is, is you know, easily um, affiliated with, with school safety in a search. But then when I submit my presentation materials, they think, yeah, we're not going to have this guy, though, talk about, how we can use Kim's game and how we can use situational awareness practice to really get at the heart of school safety. When we have $30,000 coming in from vendors or more in the hallway who that's not what they're about, you know, they're selling the window films. So we've got to all have the same tune. 
Um, you know, they're calling the tune and I'm not singing it if I'm doing that. So it's weird. It's weird to kind of go through that because it's great stuff, but people don't want the empirical side. So I look at these conferences, I look who's presenting, and if you're seeing FBI, Secret Service, military, things like that, it's not appropriate for a school conference. These folks are not intently and intensely studying schools for the most part. They're just not. Um, but they're being brought in because, again, people believe, well, these are the experts then in safety. And look at the message they're sending. Look at who the vendors are. Look at who the sponsors are. And you can see pretty fast in a lot of conferences and more and more conferences today than ever, it's really marketing. It's vendors. Um, and they are completely just trying to sell you fortifications and maybe fancy apps. All response side, nothing prevention side. So it's really a dangerous world right now in school safety because the money's out there. People go to these conferences and the indoctrination happens more and more with the rhetoric and fueling the panic of you have to buy this. You have to buy this and we'll show you some fancy demonstration and we'll give you this great tote bag and whatever else but you have to buy this. This is what it's about. It's not about educating you. It's about marketing and convincing you to buy our product. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. David Proden, School of Airs. Check it out, my book. Thank you so much for your support and for following on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Subscribe here to the Safety Doc Podcast. Again, this is David Proden. Thank you so much, everybody. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.